You're listening to Brick to the Future, the property investment show for everyday Australians. We cut through the white noise so you can minimise risk and make smart, informed investment decisions. If you're after tips and strategies while building a property portfolio that suits your lifestyle, you're in the right place. Hey, Boz here. In this, this episode, we're actually going to be showing a presentation that I recently did internally uh, here, in the, uh, here in the office. I've got some great feedback. It's all around the market update and where we see the key indicators right now. Uh, as I said, it was done in-house. We want to make it more public through the podcast. Uh, so just bear in mind that there is a slide deck that goes with that. I give commentary on what I'm talking about, but if you do want to see the slides, by all means, get in touch with us and we can send you a copy of the video recording. But uh, enjoy. A lot of insights around where the property market's at right now and how you can take advantage of it. Welcome, everyone. Uh, thanks for joining us today for Australia's Property Investment Hotspots presentation. Property market, it's a funny thing, isn't it? Everyone's got an interest in it or an opinion on it or both. So we're lucky we get to talk about the fun stuff around Australia's property market. But I'm going to start because on a ferry from Positano to Capri uh, only uh, six weeks ago, there was a Brisbane real estate agent, uh, there was a property investor, and then there was a couple uh, from Canberra who were both journalists. So that's kind of like the interesting mix when you're talking about property. You've got the hype guy, you've got the data guy, and you've got the media people. Anyway, over a couple of lines on this beautiful boat cruise, the property market came up. And where we got to at a certain point was, right, well, how do you explain to people about the economy when I was voicing frustration around how the media present things? And I said, well, it's pretty simple. Imagine that anyone that's had a house uh, has probably seen an increase in value over time. Yep. Okay. So do you think the mortgage that they've taken out to buy that house and the interest they pay on it is a worthwhile investment? Yep. Okay. So why does everyone in Australia have a problem with our debt? It's just the way that the politicians communicate how we're using that debt to grow an economy. And they said, that's a very, very good point. But the problem with him with Chloe wanting to race her partner, the two journalists, was he at Channel 9 will take a four-second grab of that, play it on the news, and that's what people listen to. So lo and behold, I get really passionate about helping people debunk what you hear in the media to the reality that's actually happening in the property market, what drives it, what's important. Yeah, there's a fair bit of data. You'll see a bunch of graphs. Don't worry, I'll put it into plain English and not get into too much of the nitty-gritty. But the point is that having helped investors for nearly 20 years, having been an investor myself for 20 years, I've just seen and heard it all where people say, Uncle Bob told me back in 2003 that the market was going to crash. Or Bruce, a client of ours, uh, who subsequently got a portfolio of three properties, said that his accountant told him in 1999 not to buy in South Melbourne for $180,000. Do you think the accountant's written him a check for the 1.4 mil that he's missed out on by not buying that property? Okay, so that's why this stuff's important. That's why we're passionate about it. Uh, today's about giving you guys some insights and information in case you're not aware of who Open Corp are. Very, very quickly, this is us. Uh, we uh, There are four of us in Open Corp. Um, Matt, our CEO, and I played footy just over there about 25 years ago together. Uh, got on famously when we were 18 years old. Both Life Property reconnected 15 years ago uh, and found that as we were growing our own investment portfolios, 
our family and friends uh, were curious about what we were doing, wanted to get a piece of the action. So we're a business built on repeat referral clients. Our first 30 clients were our friends and our family. Uh, nothing's changed to the point where uh, at least 50% of our business each year since we started is repeat referral. We love that because that means accountability and it means results. Uh, one property, doesn't matter how great it is, is not going to create financial freedom for you. It's about understanding a stepwise process where you can pick the right kind of property for your own personalized investment roadmap, how that property works for you and allows you to lay the rinse repeat a handful of times over the long term. Not rocket science. Why do so many people get it wrong? Because they listen to what they hear in the media, they buy based on the emotion, they take all that motivation they have, they buy something and probably do less research on it than what they would spend on a piece of you know power equipment for their gut. We can laugh about it, but it's what happens. The number of people that buy holiday houses while they're on holiday, sun shining and life's good and I haven't got work and emotional purchase, this is where they come unstuck. So in terms of what we do, we help our clients end-to-end investment advisory, mortgage broking, property management, um, ways to get into the property market. If you don't have a deposit through residential property funds management, we help SMS clients. Uh, in effect, we do everything start to finish. But the really, really key part here is this research and analytics and acquisitions. Not only do we educate our clients, and you've all got uh, bags there today with, with a couple of books that we've written in that you can take home. Um, we put education right at the start but it's about how we help our clients execute it. So it's not like we'll teach you and then you go do it yourself. Uh, I'll talk about the insights that our research and analytics team have shortly. Uh, but we spend, last year, we spent over 19,000 hours across our team in research and analytics, looking at the market, the data, conversations with councils, property developers, state governments, federal governments, all these kind of uh, stakeholders that affect what's happening in the property market. Um, just think about how long it would take to do 19,000 hours yourself and hence we're in business and we have been for 20 years helping people. Um, so what we are very proud of is our track record. It's very easy to say we've done it for a long time. Very easy to say that we've got repeat and referral business, but uh, if you haven't worked out by now, we're pretty ruthless on the data because that's what informs the right decisions. What that data has been able to do is allow nearly all of our clients to average more income than the average investment. Why is that important? Because as I said, you don't want to be buying one and stopping. You want to be able to hold multiple. The only way that you can hold multiple is if you're getting more rent and more tax benefits than someone who's not. So you can hold a property with little or no impact on your lifestyle and over time, add another one and another one and another one. Okay, that's the, that's the formula. The research and analytics, we don't get it right absolutely every time, but over three quarters of the suburb recommendations that we've made to our clients over the last 20 years have beaten the market average. In terms of the returns, compounding returns, so compound return, we love it. Compound growth is growth on top of growth. So that's on average 11.7% per annum over the 11 years between 2010 and 2021. Okay, that we've achieved our clients. So if you think, the, the one that most people know is their super fund performance or the share market typically done around 8% per annum. Three to 4% difference when you compound that over 11 years makes hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of difference on one property 
What if you had four? You reach the millions of dollars worth of difference. So that's why we take all of these returns so uh, so seriously. And this one we're particularly proud of because over the last 13 years, our clients have beaten the market by over 25%. So why do I tell you this? Well, hopefully there's going to be some credibility and some insights that I can share with you today around where we're looking and why what's really happening in the property market uh, and how you can make more informed decisions around whatever you're looking at uh, based on what we share today. Okay. Uh, investing is pretty simple at the end of the day. Really comes down to having the borrowing capacity, having a little bit of money in terms of cash flow, having the right mindset. Which is so simple, I hear you say, Joel, why doesn't everyone do it, Michael? Very good question. The reason is, where do most people get their information about everything, including the property market? It's the media, right. So, here are four of my personal favourites, two of which are directly relevant in a couple of minutes. This one here. For those of you who can't see, March 31, 2014, uh, this article uh, appeared in the Sydney Morning Herald. Property prices could fall 10 to 20% housing bubble fears. Show of hands, audience, if you read that in the paper, put your hand up if you're likely to go and buy a property in the six months after that. Right. Stay tuned. Next one. You may remember it wasn't that long ago, around 2016, 2017, especially with those in, in property and finance, uh, will remember when the percentage of investor activity had really grown, um, especially off the back of growth in Sydney and Melbourne between 2013 and, and 2017. Uh, because they're the two most expensive markets in Australia, APRO, who were the, the banking regulator, the, the lending police, if you like, uh, said that they really wanted to constrain investment lending. Banks had to bring the percentage of their loan book to investors right down under 30% and do it very, very quickly. So the impact was that the um, interest-only interest rates were much higher, what, over a percent higher than a principal and interest rate. How do most people pick their loans in Australia? Give you the lowest rate. Not the most important thing for an investor, but... It works on a mass scale because everyone went to the banks. I want to be paying a percent less. I'll go on P and I, not realizing that the actual repayment is still a lot higher than if you're paying a higher interest-only rate. The interest only just tax deductible. So it worked. Twenty seventeen, March twenty seventeen. This headline, an old classic from over twenty years ago. Uh, I can send this around to anyone that wants to see it. Basically, these are a bunch of quotes. For people that say that the housing market is going to crash and that they've got the goods to the wall and you know you are uh, you know buy everywhere the red line is what the prices have actually done over that time and it's amazing how most of the people that talk here are americans that write books to scare people and have a new book out want to sell something great marketing exercise not so great for your insights uh you know or those that are in uh economics uh, no offense to any economists in the room, but the economists get it wrong more often than they get, than they get it right. Uh, case in point, in this book, we wrote it in the middle of COVID. We said what was going to happen. Everything we wrote in here has happened in the three years since. Uh, CBA, we're talking about prices dropping as much as 30%. Yeah. So hence why we get so passionate about the uh, the media piece. 
This one is my absolute favorite. This is back in 2019, exactly the same media outlet. Polar opposite headlines, 36 hours apart. Question for you guys, does the property market and its trajectory train every 36 hours? Books on. Okay. But as Chloe was saying about how Reese will take a four minute grab and put something that is clickbait and gets people interested, right? Let's understand the motivation of the world in which we live. These, these, uh, Fear-based tactics are purely there to get clicks. Uh, I can't explain all of the property market in the next 45 minutes. I can't even go close. And I'm going to give you some key takeaways, looking at some key metrics that we look at. I don't have 45 minutes on the news to explain it to everyone. And to be honest, the data is fairly detailed and dense. Not everyone would understand it, not have an appetite to understand it. So we understand why they're doing it. But I just encourage you, take with a grain of salt what you're hearing in the media and seek to understand it in a bit more detail. I assume that's why you're here, which is great. Why I said those two headlines at the start were so important is these are three properties, three locations, I should say, suburbs and years that our clients bought and how they've done. 2014, when Christopher Joy said that the housing bubble was going to burst and prices had dropped into 20%. That would scare most people. You've missed out on nearly 400 grand. When it was really hard and you're having to pay 1% extra as an interest only loan to an investor. Okay, again, over 300,000 that you would have missed out on. Our old good friend COVID, no headlines required. Uh, we were telling our clients and anyone that would listen that the fundamentals are really, really strong. We didn't know exactly when it was going to rebound, but when it did, it would move quickly. Uh, and... Our clients have made over 300,000 in three years on those recommendations. Okay, so when you think about a million dollars, it doesn't happen overnight, it takes time. But there are three instances where the headlines in the media are saying, no, 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 buy beware. The fundamentals told a very, very different story, all of which I'll share with you uh, as we go through today um, to be able to achieve a pretty good result. Is everyone clear on not listening to the media movie for? Ten signs. Cool. Um, so, how do we do it? Great, Michael. We're 25% better than the average. What's the formula? The formula is what we call the MAP process. Think about how most people go about uh, selecting a proper, an investment property. Um, I'll ask a question. 70% of investors do it. Where do they buy? Sex. Exactly right. Oh, it's the same suburb they live in. Yeah. So what they do is they say, right, I'm motivated. Property works for me. This house that I live in has gone up in value. Uh, I'm most worried about not being able to service the mortgage. So what do I need to do? I need to make sure I've got rental income. How do I do that? Make sure I can drive past it. And if the lights are on every Thursday, I know I'll get that week's in rent. Yeah, that's, that's literally what they did. I don't know a property that goes up in value any quicker as you drive past it every day. Right. So there's a formula, right? And zero criticism to those people. What they're trying to do is mitigate their risk, which is really good. It's just the thought process is a little bit backwards. So they look at the suburb that they live in or the local area and they find a property that they'd like. Because after all, real estate agents condition us to be emotional about what we buy. 
can you imagine yourself living here? Why think your fence is so beautiful? The kids can walk to school. We're all okay. Um, the process that we adopt is a process of elimination. AMR stands for market. Which capital city market or major population centers make the most sense at any point in time? Little hint. They're very, very different from type of time. Where it makes sense today won't necessarily make sense in three years. Where it made sense two years ago doesn't necessarily make sense today, and so on. The aid is for area. Which suburbs, pockets, growth corridors, principal activity centers, etc., make the most sense? Once you've worked that out, what's the specific property that best suits your investment strategy? And yeah, we're not developers, uh, we're not builders, we're not real estate agents. Uh, our team are looking nationally around properties that fit our criteria and we go and package accordingly for every client's individual investment stage. So no stock lists and no project marketing where we're open corporate concern. So very quickly, um, Cam elaborates on it in his book, but the kind of things that we look at from a market perspective, uh, the only thing that drives growth in anything is supply and demand. So that's at the top of this. Okay. Um, market cycles, as I said, where it makes sense at any point in time, economic factors, and median house price potential is a really, really key one. Uh, I won't, I'll resist the temptation to elaborate on that now. I'll get to that as we go through some of the metrics, uh, but you'll start to see um, specifically why affordability in markets that haven't grown have so much appeal and the indicators to, to identify which, which they are. <laughs> Once we've got the uh, once we've got the areas, well, if you want to know the market, who wants to know the markets right now? Yeah, Brisbane and Perth. I'll show you why. Um, areas exactly the same thing: supply and demand. Okay, um, established housing and infill means that we want to be in existing suburbs surrounded by established housing. Amenities: they're all the obvious things: school, shops, public transport, uh, jobs. Uh, to our friend who is motivated to invest, wants to mitigate their risk and make sure they've got rental income coming in, their strategy is to drive past it every day. How can we mitigate that risk by being a bit smarter? Well, let's use supply and demand to our advantage. If the majority of people in a suburb own their own home, do you think it's got some appeal? Would tenants like to live there? Cool. What's the best way for us to drive our rental growth up? Use supply and demand to our advantage. So if we've got high demand, the best way to get rental growth is to limit supply. Let's get the best of both worlds in. Invest where the majority of properties in that suburb are owned, uh, what they will live in. Finally, when we get to uh, when we get to the property, uh, optimum size and quality and design guidelines. Uh, I can spend half an hour just scraping the surface on these alone. I'll keep it very simple. Um, Optimum size and quality is being mindful of how Australian properties are created. Uh, owner occupiers, builders, photographers, real estate agents, magazine editors, everyone likes big. Right. Big adds extra cost. What we want is efficient for as much rent as possible. Doesn't mean small and boxy. Doesn't mean cheap and nasty, it's got to have tentative view. But if we can be buying for value and generating as much rent as possible, if I showed you a side-by-side -side example, you could see that you could hold two of these optimum properties 
for exactly the same cash flow out of your back pocket as one uh, inop, unoptimal property right next door. So same market, same area, same suburb, same street. You get the property part right, you can hold double the portfolio. Really, really good. So there's a really quick snapshot for you on our selection process. It hasn't changed uh, over 20 years. We're still looking at exactly the same kind of properties. Where do we get this information? How does it determine where we want to be investing and what we're recommending? Think about what we hear in the media. Even think about some of the research houses. You might have heard of uh, uh, SQM Research, CoreLogic, RP Data is, is uh, Tim Walmart especially, is very popular in the media, uh, active on LinkedIn uh, domain as well. All of these kind of places. What do you notice about the data that they talk about? Usually option, the rents. rates. Yes. And that is one example of to be able to report on auction clearance rates, Alex, uh, do the auctions have to have happened? So I'm not necessarily sounds don't go away. Yeah. Well don't get what until okay. we Right. But if 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 a clearance rate is being reported, then that auction result is the <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. So none of it is actually forward looking. Right. These data houses are great at telling us what has happened. Right, but we want to know, we want to be ahead of the curve. What is going to happen? What does it look like? And these are just some of the sources that our research and analytics team are looking at to get that kind of information in addition to conversations, as I said, with local councils, uh, local government, state government, federal government. Um, if you want the 20 year picture on house prices in Australia, we're really, really bullish about it. It's going to be ridiculously positive. Why? You'd agree we've had a lot of population growth in Australia in the last 20 years. Off the charts. 25% right? above historic numbers. Uh, our good friends at the Treasury two weeks ago released the intergenerational report, which comes out every 20 years. And the population growth that they're budgeting on and planning for and committing to over the next 20 years will dwarf dwarfs the population growth that we've had in the last 20 years. So if you can choose where to put your money and invest in something that people have to have, i.e. house and shelter, and we're going to pile in population growth that increases demand, and it's really, really hard to bring supply to market, property makes sense. I'll give you some detail. But they're the kind of um, sources that we're looking at. Uh, you don't always hear about these kind of data sources in the uh, in the media. So to keep it really, really simple and give you some tangible takeaways, uh, there are four fundamentals that drive the property market at any point in time. Whether it's booming or flat, these four things are at the heart of what's happening for the movements within the market. Firstly, supply. Talked about supply and demand. And each of these... Uh, Key metrics underneath are the kind of things that I'm going to be talking about and showing you some data on. Um, clearly, the main ones, uh, not, not, not everything, but a really good place to start. Demand goes hand in hand with supply. Affordability is critical. Okay, Part of the reason why we talk about Brisbane and Perth is because they're a lot more affordable than Sydney and Melbourne. 
Do you think that um, one location in Australia uh, that has where workers have exactly the same wages as another area in Australia, but their house prices are half of what the other area is, are prime for growth? That's Perth. Perth wages and Sydney wages are on almost parity, but their median house prices half of what Sydney's is. And so. At a, at, a, at a very simple level, this is the kind of thing that we're looking at and why affordability is so important. But where do most people get their information? They get it from the media. What does the media drive? The media drives consumer sentiment. And I'll show you a really good summary towards the end of exactly where that's sitting and what's driving it. Okay. All right, so let's get into supply to start with. Sales listings. Okay. The black dotted line is the five-year average. Okay, and you can see that the blue line, which is this year, uh, is starting to trend up. So the number of new listings on the market has increased. Okay. Great, it's actually getting above, just tickled above where it was at the same time last year. Okay, so there's a bit of an indicator on consumer sentiment and fundamentals because remember that was dropping rapidly when inflation was really, really high. We've had three months of no interest rate uh, changes or rises. Um, everything's starting to stabilize. Very, very quickly, we start to see increase in how people are feeling with regards to the housing market. Cool. But what about total listings? In terms of overall supply, much lower than where we were last year and the previous five-year average. So when you hear the articles around supply is really constrained, uh, speak to anyone that is in an area where there's an increase in demand, most of them are in Sydney and Melbourne, as I'll get to in a second, you'll see. Okay. Uh, real estate agents are literally knocking on people's doors going, do you want to sell? I've got pent up demand. Okay, so while the new listings have increased, you'll see that Sydney and Melbourne are really driving that with a rapid increase. When I get to that slide, I'll explain why. Uh, but overall, supply is very constrained. Nearly a quarter less fewer houses on the market than what we used to see over a five-year average. All right. Uh, Alex, you mentioned clearance rates. I'm glad you did. Why, why, does clearance, why do the clearance rates get reported so frequently? Well, the reason for that is it's something tangible that people can relate to. But if we think about the impact on, of clearance rates on the housing market, all the clearance rate is, is how quickly and how many people are swapping houses. It doesn't actually talk to supply. There's a block of land that's sold. That's not on a clearance rate. But that's an influencing factor in supply and demand. So we can see clearance rate is really just an indicator of, of confidence and, and where it shifts. And you can see here, a lot of people are really, really surprised to see that we're very recently back up at levels, you know, where we were in the FOMO period of, of late 2021. Obviously, at a major dip, people were taking a wait and see approach as interest rates rose, especially the top end of the market. You know, if you live in a... a $1.5, $2 million plus house. 
given that the interest rate rises have gone up so much and that would increase repayments so much and reduce borrowing capacity so much, are you more or less likely to put your house on the market? More. More likely? You've got fewer people that could buy it? Are you more or less likely to put on the market? Less likely. We, we want to increase competition, right? Or home sellers want to increase competition because they get the best possible prices. So that is why the clearest rates were lower. Much lower auction volumes, much lower number of deals being done. Just a reflection of sentiment, I think we all, recent enough that we all remember what that looks like. Okay. Here's the slide I was talking about, mate, with regards to Sydney and Melbourne. Have a look at this. So dramatic increases in the number of new listings in Sydney and Melbourne. Every other major capital city, that include Canberra and a major capital city, uh, has fewer listings than what they've had last year. Let's seek to understand this. Why might this be happening? Yeah. Yeah. And what have the, um, uh, ever, ever since, probably ever since 2001, even before that with the graph I showed you before, but ever since COVID, what have, uh, what have the big organizations been? predicting with regards to, to home values, up or down. Yeah, right. And so if though if we've got through all these interest rate rises and we've had three months of stability and prices haven't crashed and there are eight months in a row in uh, in many of the capital cities, do you think people are trying to catch on and thinking maybe, well, hang on, maybe the crash that they've been talking about isn't coming. And so what we've got is an abundance of pent-up demand. And think about the demographics. The majority of the wealth in property in Australia is owned by those 55 and over. What are they looking to do? Maybe downsize their own home, cash in some investments, go travel. So a lot of them in Europe on said boat cruise between Positano and Capri. Right, all that kind of stuff. And then just been waiting to get a decent price. I think, well, maybe now's the time especially in these large capital cities where we haven't seen the crashes that we forecast. So that would explain that. But if we look at um, the uh, capital city of Brisbane here, but this really stands out to us because as you'll see in a second, country leaders in terms of population growth, both overseas and interstate migration, and a real lack of new listings. Uh, there was literally an article that came out on the weekends. I've got a screen grab of the couple for you to, before we finish. Um, and I'll summarize what they were saying there, but it's it's getting back to that very quick FOMO. You know, literally people putting in offers within hours of the first open for inspection because the supply is so tight and the affordability is so much better than Velvet. Just actually an extra word on this. So in terms of how long we kind of think that this will this will happen, this is where the, the fundamentals of the Capham cities are, are very, very different. I talked about heads up demand driving this in Sydney and Melbourne. And with regards to Sydney, we think that this kind of re rebound, for lack of a better term, um, will be very, very short-lived. Um, Sydney is expensive. Borrowing capacities have been reduced. Interest rates are higher, as we know. 
don't, we don't think they'll come down at the rate that some of the, the banks are talking about uh, because underlying inflation is still above where the RBA wants. So the last thing they're going to do is pour more petrol on it. Um, and so that pent up demand in terms of volume is going to be pretty skip. Uh, new listings will come on and the pent up demand will uh, will acquire you know those new listings. Um, but the kind of the heat of the coals will peter out pretty quickly as far as cities concerned. Melbourne, on the other hand, is second highest nationally with net overseas migration. That will underpin Melbourne's performance to a certain degree. Um, we're still taking a bit of a watch and see. We're not filing into Melbourne just yet, uh, but we know historically that the state government, uh, well, A, they have a debt problem, so they need to regrow an economy and taxes are a great way to do it. And secondly, we know that the, uh, the Victorian government's strong supporters are bringing in overseas migration. I think pre-COVID, it was two jumbo jets a week of uh, people coming into Victoria. Uh, that underpins uh, a level of demand for residential housing and our, our vacancy rates, as you can see, a second are uh, a very, very low uh, in absolute terms and, and historical terms. Uh, probably one other thing I'll just mention here is around the regions. The regions had, you know, their 15 minutes of fame uh, through COVID with you know, everyone everyone moving to the regions um a lot of people i, I talked to like this stat so I'll, I'll, I'll share it with you but of all the uh people that moved from capital cities to the regions nationally in the year during COVID, it was only five thousand people australia-wide more than what moved to the regions the year before so out of all the regions in australia they've got some population growth and people bought houses there on a out of you know 26 and a half million 5,000 moved from the capital cities to the region more than, more than otherwise. So I know the, uh, the media made it sound like a kind of mass exodus that, uh, that were leaving the capitals and into the regions. Uh, the reality was, was quite different. Um, very easy to add supply uh, very quickly in the regions. Hence why we stick to the major population centers as part of our investment strategy. Uh, Jake, talking about vacancy rates. So we can see here a, uh, a massive decrease in, uh, in vacancy rates and it's remained very, very low. Uh, na this is nationally uh, on, uh, on the vacancy rates. You can see the, uh, you can see the state by, or the capital city data, uh, data there. So uh, both Sydney and Melbourne between one and one and a half percent. Brisbane and Perth under one percent. In Perth's case, well under one percent. Uh, some clients of ours uh, followed our guidance or in Perth uh, just under two years ago for around 480000 Those properties today are worth six hundred and fifty to 660000 and they're getting $200 a week more in rent than what they budgeted for when they made the decision to Okay. So to my point before, it's great hearing this stuff in the media. Everything they talk about is historic. Let's be looking forward and understand what the drivers are um, they give us the intel around what we think is going to happen. Um, the other thing I'll point out on here, can it, does anyone know what vacancy rate represents a balanced market where tenants and landlords kind of have equal power, so to speak? We haven't been there for a long time. So, uh, close 3%. So this, this line, if you can't see those numbers on the right hand side, this is 3% here. So for the last 18 years, not once as the vacancy rate nationally gone above 
a balanced market. So for that whole period of time, the balance of favour has been with the landlords, and that's why we've seen rental growth at the at the rates that we have. Yeah. Uh, rental growth obviously has been dramatic. Um, uh, you know, nine percent across the board uh, in the last twelve months. That might seem extreme. Uh, it's been as high as twenty percent in in many of the suburbs that uh, that we're looking at. I know all of mine are well and truly up across the uh, across the board. Um, but you know, for for the for the two or three years prior to that, it was uh, it was relatively relatively flat. So it's important to remember that rent cycles just the same way that growth cycles, and that's why state by state vacancy rates are really key indicators for us around where we expect to see price growth next. Because let's say that you're living in Brisbane or Perth, let's say Brisbane, okay, and uh, the vacancy rate is really tight. You're a tenant. And your rent's just gone up a hundred dollars a week. What do you think? You no, for most people, your number one priority is going to be. What do we always talk? What, what's what, what's what's better than paying someone else's mortgage? To pay off our rent. No right or wrong here, guys. I love a bit of interaction. Um, yeah, buy our own house. So. Vacancy rates are an indicator of price growth because they talk about that shift from tenancy, people high-tailing, doing whatever's possible and taking advantage of whatever government incentives are available. It's like that under-affordability because there are price caps around different capital cities where you can qualify for things like the Versailles Road and Grant and so on. So the biggest barrier given home prices today to getting into the market is that it wasn't. Those government incentives are a really great way for people to be able to fast track their deposit and get into the market. So that obviously brings an influx of buyer demand. We're getting buyer demand and we're not getting a lot of new supply on the market. We see start to see prices rising as a result. Uh, not surprisingly, based on the data I've shared in the last five minutes, it's already happening in these two capital cities. Carbs. Yeah. Why is the great question? Is it because more investors are selling and then order occupies wider out that's most buy out there? Is that why it's so low? That that's the reason in Brisbane. Yeah. Um it's a, it's a fantastic question. The uh that's effectively the reason in Brisbane. So uh, if we go back two and a half years, uh the Queensland State Government uh announced that they were going to uh increase the land the way that land tax was calculated uh, for investors. So um, very quickly, for those of you that aren't aware, land tax, uh, like every tax in Australia, it's not simple, it's a bit complicated, but basically state by state, there's a threshold of land value excluding your own home that you can have. And once you exceed that threshold, you have to pay land tax at a certain rate. Uh, so in Brisbane, uh, instead of going from a system where they calculate land tax just based on your Queensland land holdings. Uh, their proposal was to look at all of your investment portfolio. So personally, I would have had my Victorian and Western Australian properties looked at along with my Brisbane ones. That gives a land value of X. And then if two thirds of my portfolio is in Queensland, then they take two thirds of that number and tax me based on that. So that was the proposal. Uh, the proposal wasn't planned to be implemented until the middle of last year. And, and about six weeks before the middle of last year, they actually canned it because there was so much uproar 
around it. Now, slightly different mindset here. Uh, I actually didn't mind it. The delay tax would have been five years for, for, for my wife and I. I didn't mind it because what, what it meant was Australian tax tax. I'm not investing in Queensland. Yeah, why would I do that? They're just going to sting me more tax, less supply as a result of the rents have gone up so much. So that's why the vacancy rate is so low is the construction hasn't kept pace with the population growth and the net interstate migration has been uh, the strongest of any of the capital cities in Australia, plus the government disincentive to invest there. Uh, the really unfortunate part, um, and that's why some of these government policies uh, get my blood boiling, is that um, people that didn't understand the wider impact and just heard more tax, uh, they actually sold 170,000 investment properties were sold in Brisbane in that 18 months. Uh, and obviously never eventuated and they've lost out on all this upside. Yeah, so there's a few factors, but you, you, you kind of bang on with regards to the main one. Perth um, was 2003 to 2007. I'll give you an example. I bought in Perth in 2003, November, 267,000. Uh, that property's made over 700. Uh, by 2007, it was 485. So nearly doubling in four years. Um, and as a result, then there was a, a prolonged period of, um, of stagnation in the Perth market. Then we had the GFC in 2008. So there were a, a range of factors that were stifling construction and investment in Perth. Um, they didn't have the same population growth due to the negative media around mining at various times in the cycle. So effectively, they were really undersupplied. Uh, and then COVID hit and borders were shut. They couldn't get any labor force into Perth. Our materials couldn't even get in there. Uh, home builder was announced. There was this mass influx of, of building activity. Plus uh, the McGowan government offered an incentive over and above that. Uh, so that's basically ramped up um, the demand. Supply is very constrained because of the uh, uh, the materials and, and specifically the labor force. That's why they just haven't, haven't uh, constructed enough houses previously to cater for the uh, demand that's coming in that's what's so tight. Okay, on supply, to, uh, to finish on supply. Okay, dwelling approvals. Uh, this kind of gets to the, uh, to the part that we're talking about. So if you have a look here through uh, the you know, post-GFC kind of timeframe, um, early 2000s through to pre-COVID, uh, the, uh, the dwelling approvals um, uh, excluding houses were dropping significantly. The reason why I talk about excluding houses is because Australians love houses, right? We've got a, our cities expanded as people had the motor car. So it's no hassle to have a freeway and drive and have a big plot of land. Think about the Parises and the Londons and the European cities of the world. You know, they were created and, and, and grew when people were walking in horse apart. So hence why they're kind of so used to, to tight, um, you know, urban living. And so like it or not, we're going to be progressing that way. We're going to get that way sooner or later. And you started to see around the Ringwoods of the world, the Claytons, the Oakleys, the, the greater density uh, on apartment development that are happening around Dandenong. These these major ups um, is exactly kind of what we've what we've seen over in uh, over in Europe. So um, this provides a larger volume of housing more quickly. Um, it's got to go yeah a number of apartments in a building uh, as opposed to a number of houses, um, but that's in effect. Uh, the approvals have been dropping 
And when you couple the approvals dropping with the fact that you can have as many approvals as you want, uh, but the actual cost of construction in the last three years has has escalated significantly with cost of materials and labour again, uh, then it's actually just not profitable for developers to bring projects out of the ground. So there are pent up approvals. There was an just literally this morning that came out about it. Uh, pent up approvals that aren't being constructed, and the politicians will point the finger at the developers. There's no labour force. Things are too expensive. We can't be profitable. Of course, they're not going to bring those projects to uh, to market. So this is what we're. Uh, this is why we see vacancy rates staying low. Why we see rents continuing to have more steady growth rather than outrageous growth that we've had in the last uh, two to three years, and why prices will continue to be steady because we're committing to population growth has significantly, and as I said earlier, continuing to do so moving forward. Uh, we're not bringing the supply to market at any rate at the same rate. Around demand, population growth is the key one. Uh, I've mentioned, uh, I've talked to most of this graph already as I've, as I've mentioned various things, but you can see Queensland here, uh, the country's highest in terms of net interstate migration with the dark blue. Uh, the major capital cities, Sydney, Melbourne, Brisbane, Perth, receiving the vast majority of the net overseas migration coming into Australia. Uh, more people need more demand. Low vacancy rates mean tight supply. That's why I said Brisbane and Perth at the start in uh, in a nutshell. Yeah. Stupid question. Never. Luis, population growth. I mean, you know, like Gen Ys. Like, look at what Gen Ys are. Anyway, it's 18 to like 25 years old. They don't want to have kids. They don't want to have kids because they're like, why would I have kids? Two states. Two states. They'll never own a home. You never like think about or in yeah big stuff. Without like, do you think if they swing years ahead? Yeah, yeah. Like the generation now, you get it probably like worried about why. So, so there's a couple of things. Um, so, if you look at again, like I'll use New York as an example. Uh, Manhattan enters our cells for eighty million bucks. A first home buyer's not buying. Nor a second home buyer, it's probably a six, seven, eight generation family that has accumulated wealth. So this this trajectory, I'll draw it quickly. Well, that explains why my example is is so okay. Well, think about America. Is the gap between super rich and super poor in America wider or narrower than it's wider? Absolutely. So I was that big mystery. Say fifteen, forty-three. Is very dark. And the Haddams, Abbott, and have nots are getting further and further away. Yeah, and the gap is wide. Uh, Australia, like we just haven't had as long the extra compound growth is the longer you hold it, the more you make. So the reason why the gap is wider in America than Australia is there's another two. Knowledge going on, and, and so yeah, absolutely, it's it's super hard to get into your own home. But the trend is not that the uh, the Gen Ys are not buying property; um, they're not buying their own homes because the cost of owning your own home uh, for the time that you typically in your first home makes it very very expensive. What they're doing, and where we've seen massive growth in our businesses, is what we call rent vesting, and that is. 
having the best of both worlds. So getting into the property market, accumulating a deposit, buying an investment, strong rental growth, maximize their tax benefits. They can hold that property for next to nothing, but they can rent where they want to live rather than having to sacrifice their lifestyle to be living somewhere they don't want to live just to be in the property market. So it's it's more a, um, a, a paradigm shift in terms of how they think about property and how they get exposure to the market and still have this focus on lifestyle. Um, absolutely, they're active in the market. They're just not typically doing what our parents did. It's like get a job in your early 20s and buy a house and pay it off for 20 years. It's a, it's a very different dynamic today. Uh, another trend that we see is, uh, as I said, that the majority of the, the wealth in property in Australia is in the over 55s. Um, you know, parents helping out their kids, equity gifts, guarantors, those, those kind of things. Um, exactly like that kind of penthouse example I use uh, with uh, with America. All right, okay, um, Obviously, net interstate migration, uh, a little bit out of Melbourne, very much out of Sydney. Why? expensive um, all right so uh, I won't go into this table with any depth whatsoever except to point out a couple of key things uh, population change uh, through to March the end of March 2.8 percent for the last year in Western Australia 2.4 percent in Melbourne 2.3 in Brisbane 1.9 Sydney. Um, anyone has it a guess at what the population growth rate was in Australia for the 10 years prior to COVID? And we talked about it, it was, it was a lot higher than what it had been in the past. Anyone has it a guess? No right or wrongs. Here to set. Very close. 1.6. So simply put, I talked before about the government's commitment to, to population growth. We need to regrow the economy. Uh, there's three or four pages on it in here. Um, after every economic downturn, there's an influx of overseas migration. Uh, Hence, we said it was going to happen. It is happening. It's just history repeating itself. You just need to know what to look at. But what these uh, numbers tell us, from a major capital city perspective, we're getting incrementally more, more people and more demand for housing coming in than even what we added through, you know, the move to a pre-trade. Think of cupboards. Oh, everything except this one here. Uh, you're probably noticing that I'm talking about the major capital cities. That's what we tend to focus, just the most amount of people and the least amount of land. Um, the smaller capital cities have very rare periods where they grow quite quickly and play a bit of catch up purely driven by affordability. They don't have the sustainable um, uh, job creation to handle large-scale population growth over a sustained period, hence why we tend to see clear of them. Um, so just to touch on the, uh, the other capitals there. And from a jobs perspective, um, Michelle Hawks just come in as the Reserve Bank Governor, uh, you know, and she's talking about the unemployment rate needs to, uh, needs to go up, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I'll get to the RBA's motivation uh, shortly, but you can see here that for yeah the last sorry the last twelve months, <laughs> I 
Uh, the last 12 months, the unemployment rate has, has been very, very low at you know, 3.5 to 3.7% or thereabouts. Sure, that'd be a good sign. I'm like, is that in Cuba back? Yes. That's fine, Foxy. Yep. Because the, to your point, not just side hustles, but if the unemployment rate stayed the same, and we're piling in this population group, there has to be job creation. Right? And that's the part that we don't often hear about. It's just, it's great to say, hey, the unemployment rate needs to rise, scare the living daylights out of everyone, always oh, my job secure, I'll, I'll spend a bit less. Right? They don't have to change interest rates. Inflation gets managed purely by a media message. Fundamentals don't have to change, don't affect trade, don't affect all these things. So this is why we talk about the media so much, because it is a major tool that the uh, RBA and the government have at their disposal to be able to influence behavior the way they want to get the outcomes they want without actually changing the fundamentals a lot of the time. Okay, so in terms of uh, doing values, I think I've kind of talked to the fact that they've been, been trending up um, nationally 2.5% over three months. 2.5% times four, we'd be happy with 10% growth program. Absolutely. Okay. And this is in a relatively, you know, negative sentiment type environment uh, where things tick along. It's not all doom and gloom, uh, but you can see that the capital cities outperforming the regions. Uh, I thought I'd understand that either. It's some extra evidence to our uh, to our point there around how they. Um, there's been a lot of a lot of talk about the regions and and so on in the last three years. Let's uh, let's stick to the stick to the majors. Um, and you can see just by uh, by location here. So again. Uh, Brisbane at 4.2. Um, we talked about uh, Sydney and Melbourne being that um, rapid increase in the new listings that will continue to uh, to trend up as a result, we feel, over the next three to six months. Why? Because the people that are now more confident to sell their houses are at the top end of the market. As those properties sell at the more expensive end of the market, the median house price gets pulled up. Doesn't mean it's sustainable. Uh, it's what we call a top-down market. That's probably a uh, separate discussion when you've got 10 minutes, if you'd like, around top-down versus bottom-up driven markets. Uh, but that's that's why we expect that to be relatively uh, short-lived. Uh, and Perth and the smaller capital cities, but you can see Perth is obviously stronger than uh, stronger than those and, and more on par with the, uh, with the major capitals. Affordability, really, really key. Uh, I talked about the fact that rents have gone up uh, you can see here the illustration of my point that rents barely moved uh, for the two or three years pre-COVID. Rent cycle, uh, they'll continue to be strong purely because of those low vacancy rates. Uh, we're not seeing the same, just very recently, not seeing the same uh, astronomical rent increases, but absolutely still underlying uh, rent demand based on lack of supply and the population growth. What's ceiling though? Like how, how much do you keep raising where mm -hmm. before people are just like, I just, like what's the so, so when you say when they can't, when they can't afford to live in the, when they can't afford to live in the same house, yeah, they can look somewhere more affordable, right? It's, it sounds really inhumane, but it's the reality of how the markets work is it's, it's, it's a supply and demand dynamic. Um, and give you a case in point. So 
uh, on, on the recent holiday, I was in Paris, uh, three bedroom apartment, 120 square meters, 1.9 million euros. Multiply by 1.6, what do you got? Three mil plus? We're not paying three mil for 120 square meter apartment, 8K is for a Melbourne CBD. So it's when you hear price growth and you hear rental growth and you hear that the media messaging, it's very easy to get caught up with the fact that, oh, these house prices are, are ridiculous. Yeah, it's got to stop and hence the headlines that they talk about. But when we think about what's happened in, you know, America in older uh, capital cities that what we've got, we're just on the same trajectory. It's just that we're younger and we're not yet used to kind of that uh, that dynamic. So, yeah, they, have they got some challenges they've got to fix? Absolutely. Like how do they provision more housing um, and all those kind of things? Yeah, there, there's, a, there's a load of challenges that need to be addressed. Short term, though. Yeah. So if it, go, if, if it goes up 15%, let's say, is a round number in, in this year on average, but it barely moved for these, let's say it went up 1% for the three years before, that's 18% over three years, 6% per annum. That's reasonable. So it's, it's hence why the government's number one uh, initiative is to provision more housing, whether they can or not, is, is a separate debate because we just don't have the labor force to do it right now. Um, and that's why those approvals are not turning into completions. Uh, but that's that's what they're trying to do is fix the supply issue. So you bring the supply demand balance more in favor with, in this case, the, the renters. Is there any increase in the rates? No. Like my fractional. This, this is the thing. So, um, Again, I probably need another 15 minutes to do this justice, but the, 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 the segment of the market that are really, really finding it tough are the people that maxed out on low interest rates over the last two years. Anyone that's held a house for 10 years and has seen the value double or you know, give or take um, and is covering the mortgage to see 10 years of wage growth, they're fine. Um, 35% of the Australian population own a home with a mortgage. Uh, you know, between 30 and 33% uh, uh, renters or own a home outright. <laughs> so that, that's the challenge with these with the interest rate rises is they're actually not uh, deterring or impacting the third of the Australian population that own their own home outright at all. And so that, that's why the, um, the inflation problem is, to get to right now, given thought, um, is is the challenge that we've uh, that we've got and, and why they've struggled to contain that. Because while it's starting to uh, starting to come down, um, the part that answers your question is this one. So what we've seen here with with housing, for those of you in the back, circle it for the for um, for the uh, inflation around this. Think about it as interest rates go up someone with a mortgage is going to increase their rent to help offset the costs. Are they not? Yeah. Especially when there's low vacancy rates. If the cost of rent goes up and rent is in the basket of goods and services on which inflation is measured, then inflation goes up. So if inflation is going up, what do they do? Increase the interest rates. Well, the rinse repeat. It's actually, yeah, I, 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 it's, uh, it's exactly right. Yeah. Um, where the, the increase in the interest rates was actually impacting uh, inflation directly 
uh, in the form of the, the rental growth. Um, the one thing that stands out here, you can see across most of these key uh, classifications within the, the goods and services bucket for which inflation is calculated on, the one that's really trending up, uh, I got my wife's car insurance renewal letter in the mail three weeks ago, nearly fell off my chair. Over 30% increase. Sure, I'm seeing some of the nods and stuff. Um, others are in the same bucket. This this part is one that's uh, that's really increased. When we look at the overall, think about the amount of money spent in the economy, how much of it is on insurance and financial services. Right? It's very convenient uh, to for the RBA to be able to underpin a message where we have to keep monitoring this. Interest rate rises might not be done. Don't go spending too much. You know, we're seeing insurance costs because of fires and floods and inflation increase dramatically, et cetera, et cetera. You know, trying to keep a lid on, on what's happening here. The reality is that very, very small segment of the inflation bucket is not going to be enough to, to put interest rates up again, but it helps them manage that, that rhetoric that they want in the, uh, in the market. Uh, very quickly, guys, the um, this interbank cash rate futures graph is in English. Um, our indicators of where interest rates are going. Okay, this one here is as recent as 30 June. Uh, 4.1 is our cash rate. It was expected to increase, uh, as I'm sure you all read in the paper, and then come come back towards the uh, towards the end of next year. Fast forward literally a month to the start of August, and expectations were being tepid. It was not up at four and a half or even above four and a half like before. It was more down around 4.125. As of two weeks ago, if that, not even. Okay, uh, minimal forecasts. In fact, none above 4.2 in terms of where the interest rate expectation was going to. So what I tried to cover quickly there with regards to the 